In the cold midwinter of 1692, in the middle of January, in the house of the Reverend Samuel Paris, in the Puritan settlement of Salem Village in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, a girl, about eleven or twelve years old, was sick. Her name was Abigail Williams. Apart from that name and the fact that she was probably Reverend Paris's niece, we know almost nothing about her. We know that her sickness was strange and terrifying, and apparently contagious, because soon Betty Paris, Samuel Paris's daughter, fell ill with the same strange sickness. The visiting clergyman named John Hale said that the two girls were, as he put it, bitten and pinched by invisible agents, their arms, necks, and backs turned this way and that way, and returned back again, so as it was impossible for them to do of themselves, and beyond the power of any epileptic fits or natural disease to affect. Sometimes they were taken dumb, their mouths stopped, their throats chalked, their limbs racked and tormented. For weeks, Samuel Parrish and his wife Elizabeth consulted various doctors, but none could help, while the girls only got worse. In the middle of February, a doctor named William Griggs proclaimed that the children were, in his words, under an evil hand. They were victims of witchcraft. This was humiliating to Reverend Parrish, because it implied that he, the spiritual leader of Salem Village, was not pious enough to keep the devil away from his own home. But Reverend Parrish was not a well-liked man. He often preached about the importance of church membership when three-fourths of the villagers were not full church members. The Puritans believed that only God's chosen, the elect, should be church members. Those in the community wishing to join the church had to apply for membership, and every applicant had to personally testify to his or her own individual experience of God, writing out their own story of conversion in an autobiography. The organized church in Salem Village only had 27 members, including Samuel Paris. The other villagers had to leave the meeting house after the sermon was over on sacrament days. They couldn't get their infants baptized unless they had at least one parent who was a church member. They weren't even considered full citizens within the Massachusetts Bay Colony. By 1691, the villagers were fed up with Parrish. They stopped contributing to his salary. They stopped supplying him with firewood. They tried to get him removed from the church. And when they heard that the devil himself had infiltrated the parish household, they readily believed it. A woman named Mary Sibley lived near the parsonage and saw in person how the children suffered. But instead of fasting and praying to God, she decided to fight magic with magic. The parishes had two slaves, both American Indians, a couple named Tituba and John. Mary Sibley ordered them to make her a witch cake, a cake mixed from rye meal and urine taken from the two girls, Abigail Williams and Elizabeth Parrish, and then baked in ashes. Mary Sibley believed that if she fed it to the Parrish's family dog, the identity of the witch afflicting the girls would be revealed. And it worked. After the Parrish's dog ate the witch cake, the girls cried out that the witch was Tituba herself. She did pinch, prick, and grievously torment them. They saw her here and there where nobody else could. Samuel Paris was stunned and angry and confused. He went to other ministers and local men for help. They agreed the girls were bewitched, and they advised him to pray and be patient. But they also questioned Tituba herself. She was not from New England, but probably from Florida or the Georgia Sea Islands, and she claimed that while, quote, she herself was not a witch, 
Her mistress in her own country was a witch and had taught Tituba some good magic. By the time the local authorities learned all this, two more girls had come down with fits. One of them was Anne Putnam, usually called Anne Jr., the 12-year-old daughter of two church members, Thomas and Anne Carr Putnam. The other was Betty Hubbard, the maidservant of Dr. William Griggs, the same doctor who said that Abigail Williams was under an evil hand. She was also 17 years old, which meant that since she was over 14, she could legally testify in court. And now what the girls were saying was truly frightening. Not only Tituba, but two other women in Salem Village were witches. They were Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good. Sarah Osborne was 49. After her first husband died, she married a young servant man and purchased his indenture, which was considered scandalous. Then she got involved in a prolonged dispute with the father and uncle of Thomas Putnam, the father of Ann Putnam Jr. Sarah Good was 38, from a well-off family, but now poor herself. She was known to be bitter from two bad marriages and an inheritance that was unfairly withheld from her, angry with even those who tried to help her. Other villagers had always suspected that she used evil magic to bewitch her neighbors and their livestock, and now it seemed they had proof. On February 29th, based on formal complaints from Thomas Putnam and three other men, magistrates John Hathorn and Jonathan Corwin issued arrest warrants for Tituba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne. When the first English Puritans arrived to create the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1628, they knew that the land was already occupied by others. The Wabanaki, the Micmac, the Passamaquoddy, the Maliseet, and others had been there for at least 12,000 years. But the Puritans wanted to serve God by making a new land for his elect few, the true church. And the investors of the Massachusetts Bay Company were concerned with profit. Unless they could be converted or forced to work for the colonies, the original occupants were an inconvenience. The American Indian population had been decimated by smallpox brought by the first Europeans years ago. Too weak to push the Puritans back into the sea, they tried to find some advantage in their presence, especially through trade. It must have seemed the Puritans had come to extract resources to send back across the water. In Massachusetts Bay, they extracted timber and dried fish to send to the West Indies and Europe. Perhaps the Wabanaki and their neighbors thought that there was surely a limit to the amount of trees and cod that any one people could want, and anyway, there was enough to go around. But the appetite of the European empires was insatiable. Not only that, the more they ate, the larger they became, so that their hunger only increased with time. More settlers came to Massachusetts Bay, only to find that the early settlements, like Boston and Salem, had become thriving port towns and had no room for them. The local government would grant new land for new towns about 40 acres at a time, always next to an existing town for mutual support and protection. So the Puritans kept moving inland, along with the Dutch and other colonial settlers, pushing into what had been Native American territory. At the same time, the Pequot people were fighting the other American Indians to consolidate their political and trading power in the Connecticut River Valley. In 1636, a series of violent incidents between the Pequots and the settlers became a war of raids between the two sides. The Pequots besieged Fort Saybrook until they were driven off by an alliance between the English and the Mohegans and Narragansetts. 
Then on May 26, 1637, the English and their Indian allies attacked the Pequot Fort in the village of Mystic. Almost 500 Pequot men, women, and children were burned alive inside the fort by the soldiers. The Pequot War ended soon after, the English victorious. Even before the fighting, the English settlers had begun to shift the government of Massachusetts Bay, a trading company controlled by a small board of directors and run like a corporation, towards something more democratic. Now they had a new sense of identity. In their minds, God had chosen them to win against the Pequots, just as he had chosen them for spiritual salvation. John Mason, one of the English leaders, wrote in his account, The Lord was pleased to smite our enemies in the hinder parts and to give us their land for an inheritance. And these inheritors took their victory as proof of their righteousness, and events seemed to prove them right. There were years and then decades of peace between the English and the Indians until 1675. One night, around 8.30 p.m. on August 21, 2016, a nine-year-old boy in Greenville County, South Carolina, was walking along a man-made trail that cut through the woods near his home when he saw clowns. They were whispering and making strange noises. He ran back home and told his mother. She didn't believe him, of course, so he led her to the spot where he had seen the clowns, and she saw them too. They flashed green laser lights at her, and then ran away into the dark woods. At the same time, back at their house, the woman's older son heard noises outside their front door like chains being dragged, and then someone banged on the door. When the woman got home, she called the police, who dutifully took down their descriptions. The deputy assigned to the case decided to ask around to see if anyone else in the Fleetwood Manor apartments saw anything strange that night. One woman said that, come to think of it, she had seen a clown outside around 2.30 a.m. on the morning of August 21st. The police report says that he was a large-figured clown with a blinking nose standing under a post-light near the garbage dumpster area who waved at her and she waved back. Some local children told the police that clowns would sometimes come out of the woods and offer them money to entice them to go with them, and all the kids knew that clowns lived in a house on the edge pond the end of that trail that cut through the woods. Deputies searched the house repeatedly, but found nothing. They never found any evidence of any clowns, and maybe that would have been the end of it. But then three days later, the property manager for Fleetwood Manor Apartments posted copies of a letter on all the doors. It warned them to be careful, watch out for your children, call the police if you see anything suspicious. A few days later, there were two new sightings in two other apartment complexes not far from Fleetwood Manor. A 12-year-old girl told police she saw a man taking pictures of children with another man wearing a black jacket and a clown mask. Another child saw a man in a clown costume and their parents called 911. The following night, another sighting, this time at Shemwood Apartments. This time, the children chased two clowns who broke through a wooden fence and jumped in a waiting car where another clown drove off in a black Honda. The next evening, a girl walking home from school saw a clown lurking in the woods by a local school. At the same time, someone at the Park Haywood Apartments saw a clown in the complex's laundromat 
He was a middle-aged man with his face painted white, a red line around his mouth, a white swimmer's cap on his head, with red hair poking at the sides, smelling of house paint, just standing and staring. There was never any surveillance footage, no physical traces left behind. One woman tried to take a picture, but it was too dark to make out. But the police investigation continued, and community leaders held a press conference to plead for caution and safety. The sightings continued through September, and then in early October, sightings were reported in Canada, then the United Kingdom, then Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Latin America. By mid-October, there were numerous sightings in almost every U.S. state, most of Canada, and 18 other countries. But there was still no evidence. It seemed to be building to a climax at Halloween, October 25th, when the clowns would all emerge from their, from their shadowy places at the same time to do something terrible. But almost nothing happened. There was no clown invasion. This wave of clown sightings, the latest since they started around 1981, was over. Starting on March 1st, 1692, the magistrates John Hathorne and Jonathan Corwin began interrogating the accused witches, starting with Sarah Good. The interrogations took place in public at the Salem Village Meeting House, with most of the villagers in attendance, along with the four. Going by an old Massachusetts law defining a witch as one who hath or consulteth with a familiar spirit, Hathorne asked Sarah Good, What evil spirit have you familiarity with? None, she replied. Have you made no contract with the devil? No. Why do you hurt these children? Sarah Good continued to insist that she was innocent. Finally, Hathorne turned to the four girls, the accusers, who were seated together. Look at Sarah Good, Hathorne said to them, and see if she was the person who hurt you. Yes, they said, it was her. Then they went into tormented fits. It wasn't me, Sarah Good cried, in fear and anger. It must be Sarah Osborne. She's the one attacking those girls. The transcripts indicate that Sarah Good was by turns enraged and sarcastic in her responses, but now even her own husband, William, wondered about her innocence. Sarah Osborne was next. She was asked the same questions and gave the same responses. She was told that Sarah Good had accused her of tormenting the children. I do not know, she said, but that the devil goes about in my likeness to do any hurt. Hathorne asked the four afflicted girls to look at Sarah Osborne. And again they screamed and cried out. Then suddenly some of the villagers spoke up. Someone noted that she hadn't been attending church lately. Someone else said that Sarah Osborne had once seen a thing that looked like an Indian, all black, that had grabbed her by the neck, or maybe Sarah had dreamt it. Finally it was Tituba's turn to be interrogated by the magistrates, who didn't know that Samuel Parrish had beaten her until she agreed to confess to being a witch. The devil, she said, had appeared to her and commanded her to serve him. She tried to resist, but he sent his emissaries to frighten her into doing his will. She had seen Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne hurt the children along with the specters of two other women and a man from Boston. Sarah Good had a familiar, a yellow bird that sucked blood from between her fingers. Sarah Osborne had two familiars, a thing with a head like a woman with two legs and wings, and a short hairy creature that walked like a man. The girls listened to Tichiba's confession in silence. When she finished, they once again cried out in torment. Betty Hubbard had an extreme fit, 
They all agreed that Sarah Good was guilty. Tichuba complained that Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne were attacking her at that very moment, preventing her from saying anything more. That night, Sarah Good was jailed at the house of the constable. Betty Hubbard was recuperating at the house of her master, the Dr. William Griggs, when she cried out in fear. She saw Sarah Good's apparition standing on a table, staring at her. A local man named Samuel Sibley, who had been watching over Betty, rushed in to help. He saw nothing, but he struck out with his staff at the space above the table where Betty said she'd seen Sarah Good's spectral form. That same night, some villagers saw Sarah Good lurking in Salem Village, free from her captivity. When they told the constable, he found Sarah still locked up in his house. But the constable's wife noticed that Sarah's arm was bloody. In the same spot, it occurred to her where the specter of Sarah Good had been struck by the staff of Samuel Sibley at the house of William Griggs earlier that night. Over the next few days, the magistrates interrogated Tijuba in jail. She said she had given in to the devil and signed his book with a mark in her blood to join his legion. Then the devil showed her the marks of Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. There were nine signatures in all. Word of this reached the villagers, and there was little doubt the devil had come to Salem Village and he was there to do the devil's work. But they wondered who else among them had signed the devil's book. If the Pequot War was a crisis for the English Puritans, King Philip's War was a catastrophe. The war was started by the Wampanoag chief Metacom, the second son of Massasoit. Massasoit had good relations with the pilgrims, the English settlers who arrived on the Mayflower, and in those better days, Metacom had adopted the English name Philip. But those days were long gone by the time Metacom became chief in 1662. The Europeans kept settling on Indian lands, leading to a constant state of tension. The spark came in 1675, when three Wampanoags killed an Indian who had converted to Christianity. In response, officials in Plymouth Colony captured the three men and hung them. The Wampanoags and other tribes formed an alliance to push back against the European invaders. Metacom's forces attacked, raided, and ambushed the colonists again and again, while the colonists fought back as best they could. In December, Metacom moved north and set up his winter camp in New York, where he hoped to enlist the aid of the Mohawk against the colonists, but the Mohawk refused to help. Then, in February 1676, the Mohawk ambushed 500 of Metacom's warriors, killing several, perhaps most of them. Metacom withdrew back to New England to continue his war into the spring of 1676. But even though his warriors could infiltrate deep into colonial territory, assaulting Plymouth Colony, burning Providence to the ground, it was too late for the Wampanoags to annihilate the English. It had always been too late. Smallpox, typhoid, measles, and spotted fever brought by the earliest European settlers decades earlier had wiped out most of the Algonquian population, so that by 1676 there were only about 2,500 warriors in Metacom's forces, compared to about 16,000 colonial militia. By July 1676, Metacom's allies were leaving him, his coalition breaking up. He knew the war was lost, so he went back to where the war began, hiding out in the Assawamsit Swamp, south of Providence. He was tracked down, shot, beheaded, and drawn and quartered 
his severed head prominently displayed in Plymouth Colony for many years. The fighting continued in northern New England for two more years. By the end of the war in 1678, more than half of the towns in the New England Confederation had been attacked. Twelve were completely wiped out. The colonists were literally decimated. One-tenth of all men available for military service were killed. The colonial economy almost collapsed. Even if the English crown had been interested in aiding its colonial subjects, they were an ocean away, but the colonies managed to survive and rebuild on their own. But the brutal violence of King Philip's war had changed them. They had been through terrible suffering and inflicted suffering in return. It had marked them as a separate people, still English, still subject to the crown, but with a new identity that was just beginning to take hold. And there were still violent incidents between the colonists and the native peoples, tensions between New France, now Canada, and the English settlers in the 1680s led to open warfare between the French and the Wabanaki allies and the English and their Iroquois allies in 1690. Again, whole towns were destroyed and hundreds killed. The district of Maine was almost emptied of English settlers as they fled deeper south into Massachusetts to escape the attacks. On January 25, 1692, hundreds of Penobscot Wabanakis raided the town of York in the district of Maine. They destroyed the town, killed about a hundred colonists, and captured at least 80 who were forced to walk to New France where they were ransomed. The attack stunned the New England colonists, who called it the Candlemas Massacre. And just a week earlier, Abigail Williams and Betty Paris had fallen into fits at the house of Samuel Paris. The book Michelle Remembers was published in 1980. It was co-written by Michelle Proby under the pen name Michelle Smith, along with her psychiatrist, Lynn Lawrence Pazder, whom she later married. It was framed as Smith's autobiography, but it really consisted of Smith's tales of horrific physical abuse at the age of five at the hands of a satanic cult based in Victoria, British Columbia, in Canada between 1954 and 1955. Smith had repressed these memories, but Lawrence Pazder extracted her stories in the course of 600 hours of hypnosis over 14 months, during which they also became romantically involved. The final memory was of an 81-day-long ritual that summoned the devil himself. Jesus and the Virgin Mary appeared in person to stop it, and the Archangel Michael removed Michelle's physical scars received over the previous year and blocked her own memories of what she had suffered, explaining why she had not recalled it earlier. The book garnered national press coverage and sold well. The term ritual abuse, coined in the book, entered the popular discourse, and Pazder became a recognized authority in the new field of satanic ritual abuse investigation. Pazder and others promoted the idea that this satanic ritual abuse was the work of a worldwide conspiracy of evil abusers. The fact that there was never any evidence to support this claim simply showed how powerful and far-reaching the conspiracy was. A fear of an evil network of child abusers took root in the American suburbs of the early 1980s, which were designed to be racially, politically, and culturally homogenous. They were overwhelmingly white, conservative, and Christian. New laws mandating the reporting of child abuse had begun to show just how widespread child abuse was in these communities. 
but rather they confront the awful reality that the abusers were the husbands, male relatives, teachers, coaches, pastors, and youth leaders whom the parents had trusted with their children, they preferred to blame an evil conspiracy working in the shadows. Not only did this play into the natural fear that parents have for their children's safety, it dovetailed with a rising tide of fundamentalist and evangelical Christianity that preached warnings of widespread demonic and satanic influence in the government and popular culture. A turning point came in 1983, when Peggy McMartin and Ray Bucky were charged with ritually abusing the children at their preschool. Despite the lack of evidence, the intense media coverage and the ensuing public fear triggered a wave of accusations against over a hundred preschools across the U.S. In 1987, the journalist Geraldo Rivera devoted an episode of his popular television show to satanic ritual abuse, claiming that there were over one million Satanists linked in a highly organized, secretive network. People like Lawrence Pazder and other self-appointed experts traveled the country, making numerous presentations to church groups, law enforcement officers, parents' groups, and psychology conferences. They often used the Geraldo Rivera episode in the course of their talk. This triggered a large movement among police, social workers, therapists, and clinicians to investigate claims of satanic ritual abuse. In 1989, Oprah Winfrey interviewed Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pazder on her popular talk show. Sally Jesse Raphael did two programs on the topic, but the actual evidence of satanic ritual abuse never appeared, despite hundreds of investigations. The McMartin case resulted in no convictions after a three-year trial. The book Michelle Remembers was discredited when it was found that many of the things Michelle Smith described in the book either didn't happen or couldn't have happened. By the early 1990s, the public had begun to turn skeptical. A 1992 report by an FBI agent found no credible evidence for a single case of ritual abuse. In 1994, the National Center on Child Abuse and Neglect, under the Federal Department of Health and Human Services, released a report also finding no evidence of ritual abuse. Psychologists and other mental health workers who studied the ritual abuse cases found that the methods used by forensic investigators to elicit stories of abuse from the children were suggestive at best and coercive at worst. In 1995, HBO aired the film Indictment, the McMartin Trial, portraying the McMartins as victims of overreaching prosecutors and media hype. The popularity of the film signaled the shift towards skepticism in the general public towards ritual abuse claims. By 2000, most prosecutors no longer took these claims seriously. Lawrence Pazder died in 2004, shortly after it came to light that for all this time, there had actually been a wide-ranging network of serial child abusers protected by a powerful institution, not based in Satanism, but in the Catholic Church. Early March 1692 saw more victims of witchcraft appear. Ann Putnam Jr., Mercy Lewis, Mary Walcott, and Mary Warren were all affected. Twelve-year-old Ann Putnam Jr. complained that Dorcas Good, the four-year-old daughter of Sarah Good, was part of the witch plot. The next woman labeled the witch was a woman who lived on the outskirts of the village, Martha Corey, the third wife of 80-year-old Giles Corey. She was currently a member of the church in good standing, but many years earlier she had borne a child out of wedlock to a father who wasn't white. On March 12th, Martha Corey visited the Putnam family. Twelve-year-old Ann Putnam Jr. went into fits. 
she saw a vision of Martha roasting a man alive on a spit. Mercy Lewis, who was visiting the house, also began having fits. A few days later, Anne Putnam Sr. said that she was being attacked by Martha Corey's specter. She wanted Anne to add her name to the Devil's Book and join his legions. The next day, two men from the village complained to the magistrates about Martha Corey, and on March 21st, she was examined before the congregation. During the questioning, Abigail Williams cried out that there was a black man whispering in her ear, by which she meant an Indian man. 17-year-old accuser Mary Walcott claimed to see him as well. Magistrate Hathorne demanded that Martha Corey tell them what the man was saying. She said she didn't hear anything. The girls went into fits. Corey, flustered, bit her lip, and the accusing girls said that they were being bitten. She moved her hands nervously, and the girls said that they were being pinched. One of the girls hit Corey on the head with her shoe, and all the girls wildly stamped their feet. Finally, Hathorne had to end the examination and ordered Corey jailed in Salem Town. The next day, Anne Putnam Sr. was visited by the specter of Rebecca Nurse, a respected 70-year-old member of the Salem Town Church who had a long-standing legal dispute with the Putnam family. A group of villagers confronted Rebecca at her home. She was completely baffled at being among the accused. Two of the Putnams filed a formal complaint against her for having afflicted Anne Putnam Sr. and Abigail Williams. Their complaint included an accusation against Dorcas Good. Both Rebecca Nurse and Dorcas Good were arrested and held at the inn. On March 24th, they were brought before the magistrates and the congregation. Dorcas Good quickly confessed, clearly frightened by the entire proceeding. Rebecca Nurse, however, refused to confess, and like Martha Corey, her movements were mimicked by the girls and met with cries of pain from the accusers, and now the audience as well. At one point, Ann Putnam Sr. went limp and couldn't move. Her husband had to carry her out of the meeting house. Next accused was Elizabeth Proctor, the wife of John Proctor, who had loudly proclaimed his disbelief in witches and witchcraft. Their servant, Mary Warren, became one of the accusers. Sarah Cloyce, the sister of Rebecca Nurse, was accused of being a witch after trying to defend her sister against that same charge. The seriousness of the situation had become apparent to the local authorities, and on April 11th, Sarah Cloyce and Elizabeth Proctor were taken to Salem Town to be examined before Deputy Governor Thomas Danforth and members of the Governor's Council. During the examination, Abigail Williams and Anne Putnam Jr. went into severe fits. They saw Elizabeth Proctor's specter on the ceiling. They accused John Proctor of being a witch. Then all the girls fell into fits. Sarah Cloyce and the Proctors were jailed in Salem Town. Rebecca Nurse, Martha Corey, and Dorcas Good were all sent to prison in Boston. At this point, Mary Warren, who had originally accused Elizabeth Proctor, changed her story. She admitted she had been lying and said the other accusers were lying too. As a result, she was accused of being a witch all along. It seemed like all of New England was under attack by witches. Reports of witchcraft attacks came from Malden, Stamford, and elsewhere. The accusers claimed there were many witches working together across the country. On April 13th, Anne Putnam Jr. accused Martha Corey's husband, Giles Corey, of witchcraft. Then, 14-year-old Abigail Hobbs was accused by Anne Putnam Jr., Mary Walcott, and Mercy Lewis. On April 19th, when Bridget Bishop, Giles Corey, Mary Warren, and Abigail Hobbs were examined, Abigail did something no one, including her accusers, expected. She confessed to practicing witchcraft. She had seen the devil once, 
at the eastward, in Maine, at Casco Bay, the site of one of the worst raids inflicted on the colonists by the Wabanakis. Three or four years ago, Abigail had met Satan in the woods near Falmouth, another target of the Wabanakis, and made a covenant with him. The accusers watched in silence. Some observers noted that they seemed as surprised as anyone to hear what Abigail was saying. Shortly afterwards, Mary Warren, under pressure from the court, the afflicted, and the audience, reversed herself again and rejoined the ranks of the accusers. The congregants of Salem Village and Salem Town were shaken yet again. Not only could anyone, including respected members of the church and community leaders, be a witch in disguise, those witches might be working in secret on behalf of the devil's minions, the Wabanakis. The number of the next night, Ann Putnam Jr., the next night, Ann Putnam Jr. was visited by the apparition of a former minister in Salem and in Maine named George Burroughs. The specter of George Burroughs described the terrible acts of witchcraft he had committed, including using his magic against the soldiers in Maine that had been fighting the Wabanakis. The morning after that, Abigail Williams also saw an apparition of Burroughs, this time on the road to a tavern. He appeared again inside the tavern. Both times, the specters implied that George Burroughs, a man of authority, was the hidden leader of the witches assaulting New England. Soon after, the other afflicted girls saw visions and were attacked by specters. The number of accusations and imprisonments increased dramatically. The governance of the Massachusetts Bay Colony was in dispute almost from the very founding of the colony in 1628. The Massachusetts Bay Company was chartered by the Crown of England to colonize North American territory claimed by the English. In Massachusetts Bay, especially, the population was almost all Puritan, with the government dominated by a small group of solidly Puritan leaders. In 1630, a group of emigrants bought all the Massachusetts Bay Company's stock and brought the original charter to America, which meant that neither the Crown nor Parliament could exert much direct influence on the colony. The first meeting of the General Court was in October 1630, but only eight freemen were there. They formed the first Council of Assistants, who quickly decided that, contrary to the original charter, they alone should elect the governor and deputy governor. In 1631, another 116 freemen joined the General Court, but the power stayed with the Council of Assistants, who also decided that the only ones qualified to vote were men who had passed the religious examinations and become an official member of one of the colony's Puritan churches. Dissent, especially religious dissent, was not tolerated. Anglicans, Quakers, Baptists, and others were routinely jailed or expelled from Massachusetts Bay. Then the colonial government and the towns argued over tax collection, which led to the general court ordering each town to send two representatives, called deputies, to the court in order to settle any taxation issues. After three years, however, those same deputies wanted to examine the original colonial charter, which the Council of Assistants had kept hidden. When the deputies finally saw the charter for themselves, they realized that all freemen of the colony, not just church members, were supposed to be included in the general court, which in turn was meant to be the governing body of the colony, not the Council of Assistants. The deputies wanted the original charter put into action, but Governor John Winther pointed out that the recent influx of freemen into the colony would make for a general court so big as to be unworkable. 
As a compromise, the general court would be made up of the two deputies elected by each town. It was the beginning, at least, of representative democracy in the colonies. The first code of laws was formally adopted in 1641, the Massachusetts Body of Liberties, a mix of a hundred civil and criminal laws, mostly based on biblical principles. It included provisions like equal protection and double jeopardy. Next to the criminalization of smoking tobacco, non-religious dancing, sleeping in church, and playing cards. The following year, however, the English Civil War began. Immigration to the colonies slowed, then virtually stopped. And many men returned to England to fight in the conflict, almost all on the side of Parliament and Oliver Cromwell's roundheads. When King Charles was restored to the throne in 1660, this made for tense relations between crown and colony. Massachusetts Bay resisted English efforts to allow Anglican churches in their territory, to forbid the persecution of Quakers, to restrict their commerce to trade with England alone, and to generally rule the colonies more directly. In the aftermath of King Philip's War, the resiliency of the colonies inspired the king and his ministers to make them official English provinces. The original colonial charter was revoked in 1684, and in 1686, the Massachusetts Bay Province became part of the Dominion of New England under James II, administered by the king's chosen governor, Edmund Andros. After the Glorious Revolution ended with the overthrow of James II in 1688, Andros, who was unpopular with the locals and an Anglican to boot, was overthrown by a well-organized but bloodless insurrection in Boston in April 1689, a few months before Salem Village formally organized its first official church. The Massachusetts colonial government was re-established, but it no longer had a valid charter. Some dissenters from the old Puritan order refused to return to that form of rule and protested in various ways, including not paying taxes. Places like Salem Village and even Salem Town were thrown into legal limbo. The litigious Puritans, who were known for constantly suing each other, couldn't get their disputes settled. Instead, as 1692 began, they were left to linger and fester between the Salem families. On June 24, 1947, an amateur pilot from Idaho named Kenneth Arnold was flying his small plane over Mineral, Washington. He was looking around near Mount Rainier on his way to an air show in Oregon. A Marine Corps transport plane had crashed in the area. He was hoping to find the wreckage and claim the $5,000 reward for doing so. Then Arnold saw a flash of bright bluish light. He looked around for the other plane that the flash must have come from, but there was only a non-flashing DC-4 about 15 miles away. Then the light came back, this time flashing rapidly. There were nine flying bright objects in an echelon formation, as he said it, moving in perfect unison like the tail of a Chinese kite. And they were fast. It took the objects a minute and 42 seconds to travel between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, which meant they were traveling roughly at 1,700 miles per hour, three times faster than any other aircraft at that time. It occurred to Arnold that it didn't seem like anyone was piloting them, and a eerie feeling came over him as he watched. He landed an hour later at 4 p.m. at an airstrip in Yakima, Washington. He told the staff about his strange experience and then refueled and continued on to Pendleton, Oregon. But one of those airstrip staffers called someone in Pendleton and word of Arnold's encounter started to spread. 
The next day, June 25th, Arnold talked to a reporter at the East Oregonian paper in Pendleton, describing the movements of the strange objects. He didn't mention it to the newspaper reporters, but he had begun to think of the objects as some kind of living organism, not flying machines at all. They flew, he said, like a saucer if you skip it across the water. The reporters who interviewed him were impressed by the fact that Arnold didn't seem to be embellishing his story, let alone making it up. He was a credible witness. But as the story was picked up by other newspapers and re-reported, Arnold's description of the objects flying like a saucer was mutated into the, into the description flying saucer. Once those reports were published, it didn't take long for more reports of flying saucers or unidentified flying objects to appear. In 1947 alone, there were over 850 reports of flying saucers from almost every state in the U.S. and some from Canada. On July 4th, a United Airlines flight crew saw another group of nine UFOs over Idaho, the first major sighting after Arnold's. Four days after that, a press release was sent out by the 509th Operations Group of the 8th Air Force. The press release said that the group had recovered a craft that had crashed on a ranch in Roswell, New Mexico, a craft that was a flying disc. The commanding general of the 8th Air Force later issued a statement contradicting the earlier press release. He claimed that what crashed in Roswell was an experimental weather balloon. Disoriented by nuclear-age technology, frightened by the bomb, deep in Cold War fear of both the Russian government and their own leaders, the American public started seeing UFOs with alarming regularity. The U.S. Air Force instituted Project Sign to investigate these reports, followed by Project Grudge in 1949 and Project Blue Book in 1952. By that time, UFOs had become a trope in American books, movies, and television, as well as an entire new mythology built around flying saucers with associated public speakers, writers, promoters, reporters, and true believers. Project Blue Book collected and analyzed over 12,600 reports of UFO sightings. In most cases, they found that the sightings could be explained as natural phenomena, conventional aircraft, or in many cases, CIA reconnaissance aircraft, especially the U-2 and A-12 planes, which flew above 60,000 feet, well above the 10 to 20,000 feet of commercial airliners in the 1950s. Even after this analysis, there was still a small percentage of UFO reports that remained unexplained. But since there was never any evidence of these being extraterrestrial vehicles, let alone a threat to national security, the project was shut down at the end of 1969. The number of sightings worldwide has continued to decline since the 1970s. In 2017, it reached a record low point worldwide, though the U.S. still has 300 times the global average of UFO sightings. It seems that Americans are seeing few flying saucers anymore, Though sightings of strange lights in the sky have recently increased, no one knows why.